The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives, life, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the very word of the Lord. Amen. This is a very long and complicated text, and it was actually twice as long earlier in the week because I was going to go to the end of the chapter, because it's so interwoven from here to there, yet it's so densely packed, so we cut it in half. You see the umbrella for this, and it's the question I have on the note sheet in the middle of the bulletin. Did Jesus claim to be God? It's kind of the umbrella for this sermon. I entitled the sermon in your bulletin, The Amazing Mystery of the Son. In my mind, I've already changed it to marvel at the mystery of the Son, because in the text today, we're told to marvel at the glorious truths that are being taught in this text. We ask the question, did Jesus claim to be God? Because they certainly understood him to be claiming to be God. He says, it says, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In their mind, that deserved death. That was blasphemy. Is that how we to understand Christ's words? I had a friend once, 20 years ago, 
when I was working in Catholic school, but had uh, come to faith. And, and this person was a practicing Catholic, yet said he didn't believe or he wasn't sure if Jesus was God. You find this more and more. And sadly, I'm sad to say many people profess to be Christians, Protestants, who aren't quite sure. And his argument was that Jesus never says, I am God. And that's what kind of we want in the Scriptures. Like, why doesn't Jesus just stand up and say, I am God? (laughs) So I said, well, at his trial, Mark, maybe 15, they ask him, are you the Holy One? And he says, I am. I am He. But to our modern American ears, that doesn't mean God. But we see in our text today that that's clearly what they understood it to mean. Making himself equal with God. And you might think this is a one-off text, but John 10, you have the same thing happening. Jesus is doing all these signs, and they want to kill him. They pick up stones. They pick up stones to throw it at him. His response was awesome. I've shown you many good works. For which one of these good deeds that I've done are you going to hit me with a stone? Are you going to stone me? They said, we're not here to stone you because you've done good works, but because you, being a man, make yourself God. They recognized he was a man of flesh and blood. They can touch him. He touched people. He ate. A man can't be God. That's what you're saying, Jesus. In Mark 2, 7, you have this this scene where another paralytic, in our text today, he heals a paralytic, but in Mark 2, a paralytic comes to him, and he forgives the man's sins, and they say, this man is blaspheming. How could he speak like that? Only God can forgive sins. Rather than disabuse them of the notion that he doesn't have the authority of it, he says that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. He tells the man to get up and walk. What's the point? Well, who can make a man get up and walk at the word of his power but God? So the, the Jews and the, and the religious leaders certainly understood Jesus claiming to be God. It's interesting because the people don't understand that, but the religious leaders do understand the implications of it, and they want to kill him. But the problem rests, are they just misunderstood? Are they just misunderstanding what Christ is saying here? I mean, we all say we're children of God, we're sons of God. When Jesus says God is his Father, is that just like us saying it? Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, they understand that his works and his actions are making himself equal with God, so Jesus is going to explain it to them. And far from telling them, you got it wrong, I'm not saying I'm God, everything he says points to the fact that he's God. So let's refresh where we are in in this story. He's healed a paralyzed man. The man has been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus comes to him and asks him the craziest question that you'd ask somebody who is somewhere for healing. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? And by the way, so many of you in the last week have told me how that story has 
come out over and over and over in your lives this week as you've worked with loved ones or people that you've recognized they actually don't want their circumstances to change. They actually don't want to follow God. Do you want to be made well? Far from waiting for the guy to answer in a real way, the guy kind of complains. Jesus says, get up and walk, take your, take your mat and walk. <clears throat> the religious authorities are mad at the man walking, carrying his mat, his bed, his mattress, whatever it was. Because it's the Sabbath day. Now, there is an interesting verse in Jeremiah 17. It says this. This is God speaking. Take care for the sake of your lives. Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath or, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. And this man literally carries this mat into the gates of Jerusalem. Because remember, this pool is at the, by the sheep gate, and so that's, that's what he does. And he was healed, and he's got this bed, and he picks it up, and he carries it. So they're mad at him. Well, then they're even more mad at Jesus, who healed the man on the Sabbath and told the man to break the Sabbath in their mind. In Luke 13, you see another interaction like this where Jesus heals on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And, and it says, The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not the Sabbath. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he telling the man to break the commandment, the fourth commandment? Well, what we see in, in the Gospels, and by the way, this is always how Jesus uses, like, brings the conflict to, to bear. And ultimately, we see he says he's Lord over even the Sabbath. But far from saying the Sabbath doesn't matter, and far from telling somebody to, they can break the Sabbath, Christ is helping us to understand the Sabbath. I mean, He is the Son of Man. That's what it says here. You know, John the Baptist sends people to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we be waiting for someone else? Are you the Messiah, the one we've read about? I'm in jail now because I've said you are, because I've been preaching the Word of God. I want to know if I've wasted my life. Once again, we'd like Jesus just to answer, but Jesus says, tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and good news is preached to the poor. This is what the Messiah, the chosen one, the foretold, quote-unquote, son of man had come to do, to give freedom to the captives. He frees this man, not only from paralysis, but from his circumstances and everything else, and then he calls him to be free of sin. What more appropriate task by the Messiah than on the day of rest, to give a man rest? And Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, which one of you whose son or ox fell in a pit wouldn't help them out on the Sabbath day? How much more should I not heal? And so there was all kinds of misunderstanding about what the Sabbath allowed and what it didn't allow. And that Jeremiah passage, I surmise, simply means don't bring stuff into the city gates of Jerusalem to do work and commerce and business as usual. The Lord has given you a day of rest. 
It's rooted both in creation and in the Exodus, and Christians also do that on what we call the Lord's Day. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But you know, Jews, Orthodox Jews anyway, still observe these very strict rules. I've told you this story. It was last summer. We vacation in a town often in upstate New York in the summer where a lot of Jewish people from New York City go up to the mountains in New York, in the Catskill Mountains. And, and they have this community, and it's great because they can walk everywhere so they don't have to drive, they don't have to work on the Sabbath, and you will never see them carrying anything on the Sabbath. And they're always walking in groups, and usually in black, heavy suits with the tassels coming out from the shirt, under garment underneath, and maybe sometimes big, heavy hats, and it's summer. And I would sit on my front porch, and I'd walk, watch walk, them walk back and forth and back and forth, and, and they would always go to this bed and breakfast that had like 10 rooms with a towel. Sometimes they'd carry the towel, but on the Sabbath, I, I just noticed, why does everybody have it around their neck and tucked into their, their clothing? And so I asked one of these young men, not on the Sabbath, I didn't want to inter, uh, interrupt him, but one of these guys, I said, let me ask you something. Everybody's going to that place. Why are they all going there? And apparently there was like, you know how the Jews had ceremonial washings and like saunas? and so They still do. Wrapped around. You see in the Bible. And I said, well, why, why do I see some days where they have the towel wrapped around? You all have the towel wrapped around and it's tucked into your jacket. And he didn't understand the question. And so I said, well, the towel, you have a towel and it's wrapped around. And I said, is it because you can't carry on the Sabbath? And he said, oh, yeah, very good. So they wear it like clothing, and then they're not carrying it. We see this in Judaism, the, these ways around what they think are the rules. Now, I saw on, on this, this Saturday, this young man, he was a teenager, and he was alone. Usually they're in groups, but he was alone, and he was walking back, and he had his towel in his hand like every other day of the week, and he's kind of swinging it like this. And suddenly he stops, and he turns stone cold white. Now, I don't think he saw me, but he looked ahead, and he looked behind, and then he, de- he, he breathed a sigh of relief. Nobody had seen him, and he quickly threw it over his neck, crossed it around, tucked it into his clothing, and then he walked all confident. Nobody saw that he was carrying something on the Sabbath. And I thought, if he really believes that, it doesn't matter if the rabbis saw it. He doesn't answer to the rabbis. He answers to the creator of the universe that sees all things. This is what the Jews believed. They made the works, what they believed the works of the law, it was like the tail wagging the dog. And they would put heavy burdens on people. And they persecute Jesus and this man who was healed after 38 years. They understood Christ to be claiming to be God. And so you see this outline in your bulletin where I talk about the Father and the Son, then the two natures of the Son, and then the works of the Son. Because to our ears, we don't hear that this makes Jesus equal with the Father. It seems like He's subservient to the Father. And yet the Jewish people understood that this meant Christ was claiming equality with God. And so let's, let's look at that. Christ then goes on this, if you look at your text, all these verses about Him and the Father. So verse 17, My Father is working until now, 
and I am working. Verse 19, the son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So the father works and the son works. The father does and the son does. What is Christ doing? He's attributing the works of the father to himself. And he goes on, verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Now the Jews would be hearing this they might be thinking of 1 Samuel 2.6, which speaks of, of God. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol, and He raises up. Our verse 26 says, The Father has life in Himself, and He's granted the Son also to have life in Himself. You might think of Psalm 36.9, For in with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Job 33, 4, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. What am, I, what am I saying? Christ is taking the works and the attributes and the characteristics of God in the Old Testament and relating them to His own works and characteristics and doings with this interrelatedness with the Father. He goes on to judgment, verse 22, 27, and 30. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that would be mind-blowing to the Jews. Genesis 18, 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, speaking of God? Or Isaiah 33, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, He will save us. And Jesus says, The rights of the Father to judge, He's granted to me. No human can say that. Honor, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. In Judaism, you, the Lord cannot share His glory and honor with, the, with anyone. And yet here, honor. We see in the Old Testament where God says, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? Or for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. How about hearing God? Again, we hear this with with our ears. But verse 24 and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, pass death life. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Hearing God. You may think of Psalm 81. Hear, O my people, I admonish you. O Israel, if you would, but... Listen to me. The hearing of God was so important in Judaism, it was called the Shema, the, the, the prayer. It was what they were told to bind on their foreheads and the frontlets of their eyes and their wrists and on their doorposts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You are to hear the Lord. You are to listen to Him. And here Christ attributes that to Himself. Of course, that's what is seen in the transfiguration where the voice comes out of the sky of heaven and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. Jesus attributes the power of her life and death, the power of her life and judgment. It's claims that only God can make to Himself. The problem we see is that he's, he's saying it in such a way that he's dependent 
on the Father. And this is what confuses us. But, verse 20, greater works than these He will show you so that you may marvel. That you might marvel at the works of God in the Son. What are the greater works that are going to be seen? Not only is Jesus going to open eyes of blind and ears of deaf and make paralyzed people walk and forgive sins, He's going to pay the price for all the sins of His people, die, and then walk out of the tomb and give life to everybody that believes in His name. Do you marvel at that? Do you marvel at the fact that this man who's taken on flesh is God? Is that what he's saying and showing? And yet how then this interdependence? We marvel at it because it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Now don't mistake it. A mystery is not a contradiction. When Christians hear about mystery, we think of the word paradox. What's the difference? A contradiction are two things that cannot be. A square cannot be a circle at the same time. And people have tried to philosophically make a square a circle. In the same relationship, at the same time, a square is not a circle. can't be. That would be a contradiction, a square circle. But a paradox is not a contradiction. It's a seeming contradiction, yet must be true. You say, well, that just sounds like religious doublespeak, George. That's just Christian doublespeak. Really? We believe in paradoxes. For instance, how is there an eternity past? Now, whether if you're a Christian, you wonder, like, who made God? And if you don't believe in God, you're like, how does anything exist in the world? But the law of non-contradiction says that every effect must have a cause, and then that is an effect that has a cause, and it goes back forever into eternity until we get to God. And then you say, well, who made Him? And yet we know it has to be true because an infinite regress is illogical. It can't be. Matter exists. Where did it come from? If you don't believe in God, you'd have to say it always existed. That's ridiculous. And then where did life come from? But if you do believe in God, where did it come? It came from His mind. He's a spirit. God is spirit. Paradoxes. We believe in paradoxes. They blow our minds, really. We don't understand them. But do I submit to you, or can I submit to you, that if God were not incomprehensible, he would not be a God worth serving. He would just be like you, a little bit stronger. Life is full of paradoxes, and the Christian faith is full of paradoxes, and we're told to marvel at them. And so we can't understand things like that there are three persons in the one God, the Godhead, the Trinity. It's not a Cerberus. It's not like a dog with three heads. One God, one being, yet three distinct persons, yet not parts. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. One God. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. But the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. We don't get it. 
And yet, and they're equal in power and glory and honor, there is unity and equality in the Godhead. But yet, a text like this says the, the Son can't do anything without the Father, that he, he does the will of the Father, so there's this submission. Now, there's a heresy about this, by the way, and it's people that we know and follow, and, and it's not the end of the world, but it is a heresy that says it's, it's called the eternal submission of the Son. People think that because in creation the Son submits to the Father, that that's how it existed into eternity, and that's not how we understand it. That's not. If you don't believe me, look it up, eternal submission of the Son. That is not what is being said here. And so what theologians have, have said, and these are fancy words, and I have them in your bulletin, to think of the Trinity, and this is what's going on here in our text. There's two ways to think of the Trinity, and these are fancy words that I promise I'll explain. One is the ontological Trinity, and one is the economic Trinity. Two ways to view it. Ontology is being. One is the being of the Trinity, and the other is the economy of the Trinity, how the Trinity acts in creation. So the being of the Trinity, I've already said, in eternity and forever, the Trinity is united and equal. I've already, I've already quoted the shorter catechism. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and changeable, and His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There is no division in the Trinity, yet three distinct persons. But the economic Trinity is when God creates space and time and matter that we see in Genesis 1, 1 to 3. When God creates space, time, and matter, what happens? We have now a time-bound existence and God, rather than staying separate from His creation in eternity, enters into space and time. He has to relate to creation in space and time. And so in that, the Lord, in His wisdom, has distinct roles and ways of relating to us in creation. And the Son, the Spirit, and the Father have distinct roles in that. We call it the covenant of redemption, where the the Father plans redemption to redeem a people, and He sends the Son to do that. And then the Spirit applies that redemption to us. Father, Son, and Spirit working together in space and time. You get it? So when creation happens, the Trinity then now enters into creation. We call it covenantal condescension because, first of all, nothing creation could be upheld without the Lord upholding it. And Paul tells us that's Jesus Christ upholding everything in the universe by the word of his power. But God is not simply upholding creation. He has come into it to dwell with his people, to redeem his people, to deliver and dwell with, to rescue and be with us. That's covenant. It all centers on the Son. And so we see God act in creation at all major phases of creation. You think of Genesis 1, right? In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless without void, and uh, darkness was over the face, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you see Father, Son, and Spirit, because Jesus Christ, is, in, in John's Gospels, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so right there, you have this distinction, with God was God, paradox. And in creation, the spoken word is Jesus Christ who creates, and Hebrews 1 tells us that, and Colossians tells us that, and John 1 tells us that. 
And yet the Spirit is an active agent in creation too. And the Psalms say that, that the breath of God, which is the same word of the Spirit, is, is actively creating. And so how this works, we don't know, but it's mar- do you marvel? I mean, does it make any better sense that all matter was compressed into an infinitesimal thing and for no reason it just went poof and we had this, the universe here and then suddenly chemistry became biology? Like, that's nothing to marvel at. But God thought and planned and acted with and in and of himself as the Trinity. And the truth is, without a Trinity, God makes no sense. God can't relate, and that's why Allah in in Islam cannot relate to his creation. He's a distant God. Allah is not Father, because a monad, one person, can't relate outside of himself. And yet in the Trinity, we see here, the Father loves the Son. What verse was that in? I I don't see it. Marvel, the 29, thank you. What is it? 20. The Father loves the Son, and it's even bolded in the bulletin for us. (laughs) Marvel, it says. I want a big God. That's what I want. And the Bible gives us a big God. And as much as we can marvel at how God worked in creation, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then then God says, let us create man in in, in our image, in our likeness. And he said, so he created man. He made them male and female in his image and his likeness. Let us. You see those Trinitarian uh, characteristic of God, who God is, right there in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible. And then at the birth of Christ, what does the angel tell Mary? Fear not, God is with you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and will conceive in you the Son. Father, Son, and Spirit at the Incarnation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, we think here we're saying the Father. For the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And then Jesus says to redeem people, He gives what? The Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit in redemption, in incarnation, in the in the uh, commissioning of Christ at the baptism, a voice comes out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit descended like as a dove. And I do not take this as a dove. The Spirit does not come in physical manifestation. Like a dove would descend, graceful and peaceful. The Spirit was there. The Father speaking, the Son receiving the honor and the glory. This is the Trinity. Do you marvel at the paradox and the brilliance of it? It all centers on the Son. So in the covenant of redemption, the Father in taking on human flesh. Why is this important? Because we need a human sacrifice to redeem humanity. But Hebrews tells us that also gives us a sympathetic high priest who, though without sin, struggled in all ways as we did, though without sin. That, we should marvel at that, that God would take on flesh, get hungry and thirsty and weep and cry and feel abandonment. Allah doesn't do that in Islam. 
And there is no personal God, not even a God in Buddhism. So Jesus comes in the flesh, and in doing so, he submits to the Father's will, which, by the way, you see from this text, the Father wills, the Son does. There's no real separation in the will of the Godhead. But yet it's a directed activity because a man must redeem mankind. But only God has the power to do it. That's why Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam messed it all up. So a new Adam comes. And our text here uses two titles for Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. And verse 27 says, He has given him all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And so it's a beautiful usage of both titles within two verses of each other, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now, here's what I love about these titles, and I forget who I heard it from, somebody at a Ligonier conference, and I've just delved the depths of it, and it's so true. We think Son of God speaks of Christ's deity, and Son of Man speaks of Christ's humanity. They both speak of both. Now, they're want to stone Christ because he's called God his Father, making him the Son of God, right? Now, John 1 says, Jesus is a Son of God in a unique way that you and I won't be, even though we're called sons and children of God. John 1 says, the only begotten of the Father. And that word for begotten is the word of, of, of oneness, like the same genetic material, the same substance and essence. We are not. He is. So there is a divine attribute to it. But Adam, in Luke 3 in the genealogy, is called the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of Adam, the son of God. And the kings were known as son of God. And so to Solomon, when, when God is promising David a line and all this, he says, and I'm going to make your son, and he's talking about Solomon first and ultimately Christ. And he says, and I will be a father to him, and he will be my Son. And so the Son of God speaks both of the deity because only He can be the one and only, the one true Son of God, yet also to His humanity of what humanity was meant to be in Adam, in kings that were the representatives. But then as, we, as Pablo prayed in the prayer, Romans 8, Galatians 4, we have received adoption as children of God. And what about Son of Man? Well, son of man certainly means human, right? And yet, where this term, this title, which theologians have said is Jesus' favorite title for himself. I haven't done the study on that, but certainly he uses it a lot. Comes from Daniel 7, where Daniel sees a vision in the night clouds, and it's very similar to Revelation. Where he sees one, that's the Ancient of Days, seated in this throne room, and it says the judgment's about to happen. And he takes his seat, and there's a book there. There's, this is the judgment. And then David, uh, Daniel looks up, and he says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Why does he say it like that? Because we should marvel at it. He's riding the clouds. What man can do that? Nobody. He's God. One like a son of man. He looks like the son of man. There's, there's no category for this. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days that seated in the throne room and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Once again, we should marvel at this. Everything that God has created is given to the Son of Man to rule and reign. He's God. And so both titles speak of of the two natures of Christ in the one person of Christ. And every attempt to try to understand this has resulted in heresy. In the first 300 years of church history, you have this under, is, is, is he half man and half God? Maybe he just appears as a man. Maybe he's a God like we're sort of like the gods. Maybe he's a demigod. No, fully man and fully God. I don't even say 100% man and 100% God because that even has questions. He is fully man and fully God. He is truly man in every sense of the form, the word, and truly God. He is the one who's come to accomplish salvation, and he does so as an obedient servant because Adam disobeyed and Israel disobeyed as a nation and the kings disobeyed and you disobey and I disobey. And so he comes as obedient. It's Philippians 2, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he were in the form of God, He's God. Did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He was in the form of God and he takes the form of a human. Learns obedience, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, what highly exalts him? This is what Daniel sees. And gives him the name above every name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Christ's work results in what? And this is where I say the works of the Son. His judgment. His judgment. Uh, verse 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is how we have to understand the judgment of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I thought Jesus said He didn't come to judge. When that's quoted from John 3, in John, I think, 12, twice, he says, I didn't come to judge, but at the end of time, my words will judge you. He is given the right of judgment. Our text that we're reading today, next week we're going to say, Jesus says, I don't need to condemn you, Moses condemns you, meaning the writings of Moses. The Word of God is what judges. That's the judge. That's a two-edged sword of judgment. So the Daniel passage that I, I read you said the Ancient of Days is there and the throne room is there and there's, there's books there. And then one like a son of man comes in and takes his place amidst the books. And this is what we see in Revelation. It's what we see, the judgment. But notice what our text says here. Uh, Verse 25, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. What do you mean? I thought he told us to marvel. Marvel that God 
came in the flesh to redeem you. Don't marvel that there's a judgment. There's a judgment. Uh, okay, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice the contrast. There's a resurrection to judgment and a resurrection to life. Now, I know we say, and, and I say, like we are going to be accountable for every thought, word, and deed we've done. We have to give an answer. Elders have to give an account for how they've shepherded people. But this is one of those paradoxes, I think, because the Bible also indicates that there's really no judgment for Christians. There's judgment on those who, and, and, the, and the judgment on Christians is you have life. Your sins are forgiven. They, they, they don't exist. They, they're gone as far as the east is from the west. And I think that's why Daniel talked about the throne room judgment and the books. But when you read Revelation, it's interesting because that judgment's going to happen. And the books are opened. And you could picture yourself walking up and standing before the judge. And you can't stand before the judge. You saw John fall as if dead. And you stand before the judge. And, 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 and every thought, word, and deed in your whole life is in books upon books. But Revelation says there's another book. What's it called? The book of life. And I, the way I picture it is you are about to hear the hammers come down and then Jesus, your advocate, says, oh, no, no, wait a minute. He's in that book. Come and enter your rest. I've prepared a place for you. It's two options. Judgment for those who have obeyed the voice of the Son, and the only way to do that is by, by faith. And judgment for those who have rejected Him and his, his, his Lordship over your life. You get one or the other. That's it. There's no third option. There's no, I didn't understand. The Pharisees here can't plead ignorance. They actually understand he's claiming to be God and he's doing all the works that God said the Messiah would do. That's next week's text. That's why I wanted to just go into it, but I'm already at 43 minutes, so we'd be an hour and a half here. You get two choices, Adam or Christ, death or life, guilty or forgiveness, justice or grace. Which do you want? Which do you want? I know which one I'm signing up for. It's not a hard choice, but yet it is a hard choice because in ourselves we won't choose Christ. They know. They're looking at him. He's doing the miracles. They're not, they're not, they are not marveling at the fact that he just raised a, a, a guy who's been crippled for 38 years. They're ticked off because he did it on the Sabbath. And now they're upset that he's claiming to be God. May we not be so stubborn. And if he is who he says he is and shows he is, and the Bible describes who the Son of Man, the Messiah, is. He has dominion and authority. He's not a teddy bear. He's not your co-pilot. He's the Lord of your life. And He's the judge. That's who He is. We can choose, but only in the power of the Spirit. He grants that. And this is the closing verse. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, the closing verse of the sermon, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
Not will have, has. In case we didn't get it, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Christians, you are new creations now, living Zoe life, everlasting life now, to walk in freedom. You want freedom? It's the 4th of July weekend. I love 4th of July. I can't believe that the Lord has chosen to put each one of us in this country where we live in the most amazing country in the history of the world. Maybe Israel under David would. Maybe I should change that. But you get what I'm saying. But the freedom that we get is freedom like Pablo prayed from our bondage to sin and death. This was a rescue mission to free us. Yes, from this perverse and wicked generation. Yes, from this sinful fallen world. But most of all, from our own sin natures and sin to walk now in newness of life. You have resurrection life in you. If you don't, I pray you ask the Father to send the Spirit to apply the Son to your heart to be His child. Amen. We're going to go to communion. Uh, first, we will pray.